Hello and welcome to The Stishy, the Scottish politics podcast from BC Thompson, that helps you get a better brief. I'm Derek Healy and today I'm joined by some of the finest political journalists DC Thompson has to offer. Welcome to the Press and Journal's political editor Adele Merson and our political reporter Justin Bowie. Now, at the time of recording, Israel and Hamas have just agreed to pause fighting in Gaza to allow for the release of hostages. It will be the first break in fighting since October 7th and is expected to last for four days. Cards on the table, it's Wednesday, it's already been a long week and honestly, I don't think we're going to be able to find a solution to the conflict during the course of this podcast, but we do want to take a look at how it's been handled locally. We have a bit of a habit in the UK of taking quite complex international issues and sort of pushing them through the Play-Doh factory of our own tribes and factions. So we thought, why not have a look at how that's working out for everyone? First Minister Hamza Yousaf led a debate at Holyrood on Tuesday. MSPs backed his motion by 90 votes to 28 to call for an immediate ceasefire. And he has also written to the Prime Minister, urging the UK government to recognise a Palestinian state and to help end the political impasse in the Middle East. Let's have a listen to some of his speech. Presiding officer, like so many others, I will never forget the morning of the 7th of October. Nadia and I woke to messages from my mother-in-law, Elizabeth, who was in Gaza, clearly in distress at the unfolding situation. On a call, my mother-in-law described to me the scenes that she was witnessing that very morning. Rockets being fired from Gaza towards Israel. And she was watching news reports that militants had entered southern Israel and were carrying out attacks, murder, and even hostage-taking. The fear in her voice was palpable. There was no jubilation in the streets of their neighborhood simply fear of the inevitable retaliation that would be forthcoming. Justin, let's start by taking a look at where the different parties are on this at the moment. Can you just talk us through the latest? So, as you mentioned, the motion yesterday did pass um, quite overwhelmingly in Holyrood, so the only party that was against it was the Conservative Party. As our listeners would have heard there, Hamza Yousaf obviously made a very impassioned plea for other parties to back it. He drew on his own personal experience, um, given what his family have endured, and of course what some of his in-laws who are still in Gaza are continuing to endure to this day. But there were some impassioned speeches from across the political divide. Anna Sauer, backing it for Labour, um, outlined some of his reasons why by talking about his visit to Palestine when he was much younger. The Scottish Greens, who, of course, have always been very pro-Palestine, Ross Greer, for them, gave quite an impassioned speech as well. But looking at the other side of the political divide, the Conservatives aren't against the peace process, but what they argue is that Hamas have not necessarily, or were not necessarily going to agree to a ceasefire themselves. They broke that ceasefire on October 7th when they attacked Israel and there was one speech in particular that stood out I think from um, Jackson Carlow, the former Scottish Conservative leader who pointed out that you know the scale of death and destruction that Israel witnessed on October 7th is just going to have such a seismic effect on Israeli society but then of course there were arguments made you know from the opposite perspective that what we are enduring in Gaza right now is just you know a humanitarian catastrophe that seems to have no end in sight. Thankfully now, hopefully it seems like there's going to be a pause of some sort. 
but yeah, it was it was interesting. It was quite a collegiate debate in certain senses. You know, the Tories did offer Hamza Yousaf some praise for meeting with the Jewish community, for speaking to people on all sides of this divide and for trying to build those bridges. But there's clearly still divides there and divisions there in terms of where different political parties see the best way forward as being. Yeah, I thought it was quite a kind of passionate debate at times of people setting out their positions. And Adele, we know this is a, a deeply personal issue for the First Minister. He spoke about that during his speech as well, with his in-laws returning from Gaza and talking about their own ordeal there. I know you will have watched that interview with Elizabeth Elnakla and her daughter Nadia, a Dundee councillor who's married to Hamza Yousaf. What did you make of it? It was a very emotional interview. It was, I think, her her first proper sit-down interview since she's got home. And as she relayed in her interview, I think she has, you know, really mixed a whirlwind of emotions because I'm sure there's great relief that she is finally safe back home in Dundee. But also, as we know, they still have family over there. So I think she said she left her heart in Gaza. She's back home in safety, but she'll just be constantly worrying about their family members. And not also their family members, but just everyday Palestinians who I'm sure they came to know and, and, and will have seen on their way out, you know, thinking it's not fair that some of these people are left in, left here. Um, I think she also spoke about that feeling of, you know, you're lying in your bed and you suddenly realise it's silent and it's dark and you're home safe. But I think, well, none of us will know directly, but I'm sure that being under an intense bombardment like that, your body's probably in a state of real, um, you know, it will take a long time to to perhaps feel relaxed again. You're, you're maybe always for the next few weeks or months feeling a bit on edge because of just the toll that will have taken on her. Um, I, I think yeah, it really humanises the issue that I guess the, the leader of our country directly had family over there and, and gives it that real sort of personal edge because sometimes these conflicts can feel however you know horrendous that the footage is they can feel further away but I think that really kind of humanized it for everybody. Yeah I mean it's sort of a fairly remarkable situation as you say to have you know the in-laws of our major political leader here in Scotland um, kind of experiencing this firsthand and able to speak to the experiences that people in that, in that part of the world are having right now. Um, Justin, you touched on this a little bit. I mean, Anas Sarwar has been a really interesting figure in all this as well. So he described during an interview how a peace mission to Gaza as a young man helped to shape his views. But he's acknowledged that taking a stand um, in the position currently held by his friend, Keir Starmer, might be a bit more complex. Why has this been so difficult for him, Justin? So it's quite it's been quite a difficult one for the Labour Party because last week the SNP, led by Stephen Flood at Westminster, presented a motion of their own calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And Keir Starmer and much of the Labour Party were opposed to that. There were some prominent resignations within the Labour Party front benches, though, from MPs who didn't necessarily agree with the Labour leader. But it has highlighted a division here and it's been quite a difficult one for Labour to square. At the weekend on TV, Anna Sarber was asked, would he have also backed a ceasefire if he'd been at Westminster? And he wouldn't really address the question. He tried to turn it around and say, well, you know, this is Israel and Gaza. This is not about the Labour Party. But there is clearly interest here in regards to where the Labour Party sits and what they think. I, I think one of the key differences in this regard is that 
while the vote in Holyrood yesterday will be seen as symbolic and important, nobody has any real power to change things. Now, that's not to say that Rishi Sunak or Sir Keir Starmer do have that power to change things, but but when you are the UK's main political leader, you are more actively involved in foreign policy. Your words perhaps carry more direct weight. You can shape who you ally with and who you distance yourself from. And of course, the UK and indeed the US have been long-standing allies of Israel for a myriad of reasons. There is quite clearly a lot of unease in the aftermath of the October 7 attacks by Hamas to be seen as being too sympathetic to the, you know, Palestinian position. However, that has perhaps changed um, due to the scale of attacks in Gaza. So it's been tough for Labour. But I think there's also been opportunity there for Scottish Labour to set out their stall for how they're different from UK Labour. Obviously, both sides of the, you know, the Scottish party and the UK party want to be seen as being in harmony. But I don't think it's necessarily an awful thing for them to be able to have slight disagreements sometimes. And it's not as if Anna Sauer is coming, coming out and condemning Keir Starmer. But it has been a tricky one because the Scottish and UK Tories have been pretty united on this. The SNP has been pretty united across, you know, Holyrood and Westminster as well. Whereas you go and labour from some MPs and MSPs being very, very strongly supportive of um, Palestine and a complete ceasefire. And then you have the other side that's a bit more pro-Israel and very wary um, to be seen as criticising Israel at all. So it's been difficult, but... Um, I suppose for Scottish Labour, it's not been the worst time for them to try and set, set out the differences between the Scottish and UK parties. You know, it's interesting because, you know, talking about Sarwar, I think probably that interview he did with the BBC is the most uncomfortable I've seen him in answering questions in a really, really long time. And it probably speaks to how difficult it is to try and juggle some of those different positions within Labour, try and keep everyone happy, try and have, you know, a, a, a policy there that's going to work. You know, Keir Starmer has, has clearly faced an incredibly complex situation in all this as well, and he has so far stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. His offices have been targeted by protesters, just as you touched on there. We've seen councillors and even some of, his, some of his own front benchers resign over it. His argument, broadly similar to the Conservatives, is that a ceasefire now would not make sense while Hamas still has a threat of violence around them. Adele, for you, how well has Keir Starmer handled this situation and all of those moving parts? I think it's been tricky, to be fair to him. Uh, as Justin sort of alluded to there, unlike maybe some of the, you know, the, the context in Scotland or, or for the SNP, Starmer is a potentially likely the next Prime Minister. And so I think he has to show or wants to show that he can tackle really complex international situations without just resorting to what might seem popular but as you say there's just, there's a lot of a balancing act because he's obviously been keen as well the Labour Party's had had its issues with you know accusations of anti-semitism and and so he's he's got that concern to always at the front of his mind as well but then I think for many people particularly those that we see in large numbers protesting every weekend they will feel this is a simple moral issue and that by failing to call it out he's basically complicit to some degree in that and I think he's managed it to an extent but I think perhaps what people want 
what he might need to do is be more explicit in how not calling for a ceasefire and instead what he's calling for humanitarian pauses. I think he needs to spell out more why he thinks that will help the situation, um, why he thinks that that kind of diplomacy will be more successful, whether people respond to that. Um, people tend to have quite black and white views on on things like this, but I think that's something that he could kind of pivot towards doing a bit better and perhaps coming out a bit more strongly about, you know, horrendous scenes that we're seeing happening to the Palestinian people at the moment. Um, it's a, well, on both sides, obviously, with the hostages as well in Israel. I think he just needs to show that he's got that kind of empathy and human side as well that I think, I guess, Hamza Yusuf's been really successful at. Yeah, I think at. that's a really interesting point in terms of the the politics of it. I mean, I think when you leave that void, people are going to fill it with whatever they think or whatever their views are of you already. Um, so, yeah, it's possibly not been the cleverest strategy. Um, and not only has he faced questions from his own MPs, he faced some pretty frank discussions when he finally came up to Aberdeen to discuss energy, uh, a long-awaited visit. He's promising more investment and jobs. But Adele, what did his visit tell us about what a Keir Starmer government could mean for the North East? Yeah, I, I would say there's obviously been this... Uh, as we've been chasing up, there's been this very long delay between they announced their plans, their energy strategy back in June, I think it was earlier in summer. And there's been this kind of this void left, I guess. Interesting. We're speaking about voids again. It's just been kind of um, they've left a bit of a space there for people to feel concerned. You know, there were months and months where we didn't see a visit happening. I think finally the visit has happened and certainly my perception of it is that it will have been welcomed by the community, uh, business community up in the Northeast. I think they probably felt that any engagement was better than what they had been getting, which was very limited engagement from what I've been able to understand. So I, I sort of got a sense there was perhaps a little bit of a reset in relations. It feels like maybe now they've come up here and actually it's hard to explain, but I think only when you come to Aberdeen do you really realise the extent of how integral the energy sector is to the Aberdeen economy. And I think maybe just purely the fact that they've actually been in the northeast for two days, they've been able to get a better idea from energy leaders about what some of their concerns are and to perhaps allay some of them. It sounded a little bit, uh, Keir Starmer was very keen to say that all of them, they got agreement on the fact that unanimous in saying that there is a need for transition. So I think that's a good place to start from. But now he said the discussions have to go into how is that going to happen, the pace of that, how does government work with the sector? So it felt to me there was a bit of a reset, but the proof will be in the pudding, so to speak. You know, will they will they come up again? Ed Miliband said he was keen to to make more frequent visits up here. He's the shadow climate secretary. So I think it will be interesting to see as we go towards the general election, you know, do they come back up? Do they announce more more flesh on the bone in terms of what their policies are around around this? Um that will be okay. Because you know, some people could say there were a lot of, you know, big job figures given and, and and big amounts of money mentioned, but it boils down to right now a lot of offshore workers just don't know how they go from A to B. Like, how do you go from working on an oil platform to working on a wind farm? It's like we need to now move towards that nitty gritty. How does it actually happen? Everyone knows we need the transition and 
that the, there's ambition there from governments to make it happen. But yeah, I think now the, a lot more needs to happen on the ground and at pace because people are concerned about their jobs now, you know, not in five years' time. They're concerned about what's happening right now. Yeah. So it's interesting because, I mean, as you say, so if you look at the current polling, it looks as if Keir Starmer is going to be the next Prime Minister unless David Cameron fancies making a wild move at some stage. Um, it looks like Keir Starmer would certainly, from the next election, again, if you follow the polling as it is at the moment. So what you're saying is there, there has been a reset, but maybe not full buy-in yet from, from businesses in the northeast. Yeah, I think they'll still be, they'll still have major concerns over, I think the, the element they find particularly controversial is the stance around uh, Labour have said that they don't want there to be any new North Sea oil and gas licences once they're, if they are elected. They've said they would honour the ones that are currently approved, but in terms of new ones, no. So that's going to be the sticking point, I think, in in sort of discussions and the oil and gas or energy industry has always been keen to to make the point that it is them that are like yes obviously they're they're drilling for oil but also they're involved in a lot of the technologies and and a lot of the research into how do we transition so i think they've tried to make that point to to the labor representatives that were up in the northeast as well that you know don't demonize this industry um you know work with us because we can be we have the skills and expertise to actually help you get this to happen yeah i think there's gonna be a lot of talk in that kind of direction heading into the next general election and we had um further developments this week that will likely be of great interest in many communities on tuesday the scottish government published its latest paper on independence in the coastal harbour town of dunbar in east lothian the smp's political opponents say this is all a waste of time given there's no second referendum on independence on the horizon this one was arguably more timely though Brexit changed the game for fishing and seafood sectors. The SNP says Scotland would have a big voice with control over marine policy in the EU. However, the fishing fleet wasn't happy in the EU's common fisheries policy and the industry felt let down by Brexit. So what makes Mary Goodjohn think the fishing fleet would be happier with yet another roll of the dice? Andy Phillip was harbourside with the SNP's Rural Affairs Secretary and asked her why she thinks it should be third time lucky. Uh, well, that's the thing. Uh, as you mentioned there, through the trading cooperation agreement, the fishing industry didn't get everything that they were promised through that. Um, and I think that when you look at some of the the key stocks for Scotland, cod, haddock, safe, whiting, we've actually seen less of a quota share than what we had as members of the EU. So I think that that's where, like, if we were to become an independent country, we were to rejoin the EU, which of course means rejoining the CFP, we would have a key role in the decision making in relation to that. We would have a a seat at the table. We would be the fourth, we would have the fourth largest EEZ uh, in the EU if we were members, which gives us some influence there, where we would be able to influence the, the CFP and how that develops. And I think it's important not to forget, it's not a static thing either. And the whole policy around that has been modernising, moving towards maximum sustainable yield. Um, and that's where I think that we could have a key influence there and we could have a positive impact. So I understand that there would be apprehension about that, but I I do think that it can't be worse than what we've been through, what we've been promised and ultimately uh, what hasn't been delivered. The SNP also were very critical about the common fisheries policy when in when we were in the European Union. So is it better the devil you know than the devil you don't? And how what happens to the, the, the relationship between the Scottish fleet and 
what would be the English fleet in different waters uh, if Scotland was to become part of the EU again and share share waters with the rest of the EU states? That's the thing. We're dealing with species that don't don't know boundaries. So, of course, I mean, as it is out with the EU uh, just now, we have to negotiate with other countries about what that access looks like. And that's the thing in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Uh, so be it that lasts up until June 2026. Now, beyond that time, now, the UK could decide to restrict all access to EU vessels, but the access to waters is linked to market access as well. So that's where it could be really punitive for the UK in terms of trade, tariffs and other measures that could be implemented if they were to take action like that. Now, again, I think for me, it comes back to if we were independent, we would have members within the, the European Parliament. We could potentially have a commissioner that could say be the environment, oceans um, and fisheries commissioner too we would have more influence because of the size of our marine area and we would be able to be a part of those discussions in relation to that too. So I think that would give us more power and influence. Right now, even as it is with being out outside of the EU, we're still dependent on the UK government to negotiate on our behalf. So as much as we can try and influence that negotiation as well, we're not the decision makers in relation to that. So we ultimately want to be able to negotiate on our own behalf and to really do what's best for the, the industry in Scotland. Well, lots to think about there. Um, but I think that's all we have time for for this week. Thank you to Adele Merson, Justin Bowie, our producer Morvan McIntyre and of course you for listening at home. We'll be back next week but until then pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, Sunday Post and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.